Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So since the dawn of the internet, the advertising-based business model has reigned supreme. Starting with Yahoo during the dot-com era, the internet has built trillions of dollars of market value supplanted by advertising. So much so that in 2018 alone, Facebook and Google's ad divisions generated over $150 billion of revenue. But the cracks of the advertising model are starting to show, whether it be the top 10 listicles that crowd our newsfeed or something much more sinister like Cambridge Analytica, we're starting to see the indirect consequences of a business model that's built on eyeballs as opposed to depth. And that is something that has frustrated creators, journalists, and artists alike who want to work in a world that incentivizes quality over quantity. So that is why I am very excited to announce Jack Conti, founder and CEO of Patreon, as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Patreon, Patreon is a platform that enables fans and sponsors to support their favorite artists and creators. Jack himself is a former YouTube celebrity where he has over 300,000 subscribers. So in looking to solve his own pain point, Jack has built a platform that now processes over a half billion dollars in patronage. It is therefore no surprise that Jack and his team have raised over $100 million in funding from VCs like Thrive Capital, Index Ventures, and DFJ. So in today's podcast, Jack and I discuss how Patreon is enabling a new age of quality content at scale. Now, we also dive deep into the art and science involved in pricing, starting with how to go about surveying the market all the way to thinking about how to package and tier your product. Additionally, Jack shares the KPIs he and the team track to gauge the health of the business, as well as the patterns he sees across successful B2B2C businesses. So why don't we get started? Hey Jack, how's it going? Going great, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for taking some time. Of course. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. This is fun. As a Patreon user, first as a donor, but now as a donation recipient myself, Wow, it's really fun to have you on the show. So why don't we get started with your founding story and how you came to build Patreon? Sure. So I've been a YouTube content creator for the last 10 years. I started uploading videos in 2007, actually right after wow. the Google acquisition. Yeah. And, you know, by 2009, I was a professional full-time YouTuber and content creator. And my girlfriend, now my wife, but at the time she was my girlfriend, and I started a band together. And that band started making a lot of videos too. So I had a personal channel. I had a, a channel with Natalie. And it was great. It was wonderful. We did that for probably five years at which point she decided, you know what, I want to try something new. She signed a record deal with Warner Music and went off and toured the world and left me at home by myself to go crazy. And I started working on a music video for my personal channel that I spent 10000 bucks on. I spent three months of my life on it. It involved a 3D printed hexapod robot, an animatronic head that was singing the lyrics to the song, and I built a replica of the Millennium Falcon cockpit behind me to do this whole <laughs> music video in front of me. So this video took me forever. I drained myself to make this video. I drained my savings account. I was working 19-hour days for three months to make this thing happen. And there's this horrible realization I had at the end of this process where I knew I'd upload this video to YouTube. I'd get a million views because that's what my videos are usually getting at the time. And that my paycheck for that would be about 150 bucks, 200 bucks in ad revenue. And I couldn't stomach the idea of 
working three months of my life and spending 10 hours of my savings and getting paid $150 for that in return. I couldn't take it. And that's when I kind of looked up and thought, you know what? I'm not the only one in this boat. There's podcasters and YouTubers and web comics and you name it, bloggers, investigative journalists. I mean, anybody who's uploading their work to their web is in this same sinking ship of bad CPMs, digital CPMs that aren't paying the bills. Maybe they're great in aggregate for the distribution companies, but for the individual creators, it's not enough to make a living. And the proof is in the pudding. You got a creator who has 20,000 readers of their blog, like 20,000 readers. That's a freaking basketball stadium full of people who are looking forward to what you have to say. And you get paid 100 bucks a month for that with ad revenue. That system sucks. And that was this realization that I had at the end of this process of building this music video is this is just not the right way to scale the global compensation systems to make sure that creative people are getting paid. One thing led to the next. I called up my co-founder. It turned out to be my co-founder. I sketched out this idea on 14 pieces of printer paper. Hey, what if I just asked my fans for a buck a month, like a membership platform, like uh, KQED or you know, SFMOMA or you name it, any membership platform. So I sketched out that idea. I sent it to him. He started building. He got super excited about it. And then he built the whole thing in two and a half months by himself. And then we launched. And within two weeks of launching, I was making $6,000 a month um, instead of $150 a month. And then, you know, that was it. Like one thing led to the next. Tons of creators saw that, got just, they were blown away that I was making all this money now as a, you know, full-time creator. So they started signing up and that was it. That's Patreon. That's awesome. And I think about 10 years before on the internet, especially when YouTube was first getting really big, the idea of sending some random person on the internet some money to thank them for some sort of content you consumed was kind of an absurd idea. But my favorite part about the model is that before when you're driving eyeballs and ad dollars, right, you're incentivized to increase volume. But with Patreon now and this ability to compensate someone for your enjoyment, I think personally at least it incentivizes quality content, right? As opposed to just eyeballs. We could do a whole podcast about that (laughs) insight, which by the way is genius and totally and right on and totally within the ethos of the company. I have to back up though, before we get into that. Yeah. You mentioned the absurdity of this model. And I just have to comment on that because what's absurd? Paying someone for doing something great Or this weird freaking dance that we have with advertisers and platforms and consumers and using attention as a proxy for revenue. Like, that's some weird freaking gymnastics that I think the whole web and society is suffering from now for a variety of reasons. But that Rubik's Cube of a model to convert eyeballs into dollars, that's what's absurd. Actually, the way I think about it, like, that's crazy. What's not absurd is the way we've financed art for the last 3,000 years as a species, Mm. which is people who have money and power looking at people who are making great things and saying, wow, you're making great things. Here's some money. Go make more things. Any piece of great art we've ever studied, anything in a textbook, you know, any the Sistine Chapel, you name it, either the government or the Medici family or some pope or whoever (laughs) it is, they said, you make great stuff. Here's some money. Go make more great stuff. It's only really in the last hundred years that we've kind of strayed from the patronage model as a method of financing the arts. That's a really wonderful take. I love that. And just thinking about how I fell into Patreon, it was solely from great content. It was the Wape Up Why blog. I don't know if you've read that. Oh, it's beautiful. I read one of his posts. I think it was on Elon, his three-part series. And I read that and I said, that is so unfair that I just 
consumed that and there was no way for me to thank him. And at the end, there was a Patreon post. I pulled out my credit card. I was like, am I really about to do this? And I did. Good and for I, you. I was so happy about it. Yeah. It almost felt unfair for me to just read that and not express some sort of gratitude for so, just the quality of that content. That story, that emotionally resonant moment that you just described is why Patreon works. Yeah. It's that moment where you interact with a piece of art that somebody has made and you just feel like this is so important. I just want this to exist and I want the person who made this to be successful and I want them to make more. And that moment, if you put a CTA in front of that person, they're going to click that <laughs> button. Like that is that emotional moment that makes Patreon work. I'm curious, and I know this varies over time, but if you boil things down to numbers, what would be the metric around, let's say, views of quality content to actual conversions into donations? Oh, interesting. I don't happen to have that metric off the top of my head. I can tell you we expect between 1% to 5% of your audience, depending on the size mm, of the creator, yeah. to convert and become essentially, a, you know, to push down the funnel and become a paying member. There's sort of, I, I think of audience as a funnel. There's people who are, well, actually at the top of the funnels, your addressable audience, you, yeah. your TAM as a creator, the people who might like your work but maybe haven't heard of you yet. That next layer down is these are people that maybe have heard of you and maybe seen something or a friend showed them once. So they have awareness of you, but maybe they're not into you yet. Then the next layer down is these are casual fans. These are people that log in every once in a while and watch you and you know do your thing. Then you have your your super fans. They're, these are people that are like watching everything. They go to your concerts. They follow you on Twitter. They check your announcements, you know, the super fan. And then a step below that, you have your members. You have your patrons. These are the people who put their money where their mouth is. And they want to support. They want to pay the five bucks. They want the extra thing. They want to make sure that the creator is making more. They want to financially support the creator. And so that funnel, you know, from the casual fan to uh, patron portion of the funnel is, you know, one to five percent. Got it. That is really helpful context. And do you have any favorite stories of any creators? Let's say an artist who's just gone independent, has not had to suffer from working with one of the large labels that's only using Patreon. Any examples like that that you use? Uh, so many. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's pick one favorite one. So I'll give you, okay, there's one really great one. I forgot the creator's name. They worked for some newspaper writing about the NBA and they were part of a layoff. And rather than looking for another job, they went out to their audience. They said, hey, I loved my job. I'm really sad that I got laid off. I want to keep writing about the NBA. And I just want to do it on my own terms. And I want to write the articles that I want to write and not have a boss. And I just want to post those articles on my website. What do you think about this? And I think like within a month or something, they were making 6000 bucks a month writing article, writing sports articles about like NBA <laughs> games um, and post them on their own websites. Like they became their own media company and didn't need a boss and didn't have deadlines and didn't, you know, there's no, oh, you have to deliver four articles about blah, blah, blah by this date. It was just they got to write whatever they wanted and their members were supporting them. Those sorts of stories, I just love those moments. I love those moments to death. Yeah, that's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. So shifting more to the business side of Patreon, so we're talking about how your content creators are making money. How exactly does Patreon monetize? So Patreon takes a percentage of processed payments as our business model. Now that has changed as of seven days ago. Oh. So we released new pricing on Tuesday of last week, 
for new creators. So not for existing creators, founding creators. We call them folks who had accounts before Tuesday are founding creators, and they are in this 5% tier for Patreon. But what we essentially did is we created three new plans for creators, a Patreon Lite, a Patreon Pro, and a Patreon Premium at different price points with different feature sets. It's like a standard, like, good, better, best kind of pricing model, you know, depending on a creator's needs, depending on the type of creator that a person is. If they have, you know, 10 patrons or if they have 25,000 patrons, you kind of need different things to serve those different types of use cases. So, yeah, we released that last week, and it's a Patreon Lite is 5%, Patreon Pro is 8%, and Patreon Premium is 12%. And one of the things that I think our founders enjoy but simultaneously struggle with is iterating with their customers over the best monetization model. So could you talk about some of the changes Patreon has made to its pricing and fee structure over time? Totally. Oh, this one is so important. I guess there's a lot of founders and CEOs that listen to this podcast. I guess if I have one piece of advice for people and you're thinking about pricing and thinking about how to update monetization, spend time on it. It's not something that you can do quickly. Like, for example, in this recent pricing rollout, we spent 10 months working on this. We talked to thousands of creators. We did quantitative and we did qualitative research. We did focus groups. We did surveys. We had people come into the office. We flew out to people. (laughs) We called up our creators personally and talked through options and got their feedback. We hired a consulting firm to help us build a process and do market research. And we interviewed prospective creators. Like we, oh my God, it was. I was about to ask that. It was how could you ask your founding creators a price model that they wouldn't use versus one that you're going to have entirely new creators, but keep going. Well, so, I mean, that's part of it because a founding creator could upgrade to a higher tier if they want those other features. Mm. And so part of the research is, hey, Like, if you were to pay extra, what would you expect for that extra? And, like, we want to build things that people actually want. (laughs) Like, we wouldn't want to build things that aren't useful to you as a founding creator, right? We want to feel what your pain points are and deeply understand that and then solve those problems for you. And so, you know, of course, founding creators are a big part of that research and analysis and as well as prospective creators. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then could we actually get a little bit more granular here? Because I love the concept of pricing optimization yeah. and just packaging, right, yeah. and productization. In that process that you worked uh-huh. with the consulting firm, what exactly was that process? What was step one? What was step two? Yeah. Oh, pricing is so interesting. This is a cool thing to talk about. So first is like getting a consultancy firm on board. Then one of the first things that we did is we kind of got aligned on values. <laughs> like, hey, here's what matters to us. Here's where we've stumbled in the past. And that's when we brought up you know, the fee rollout from now, what, 15, 16 months ago. Here's what matters to our creators. Here's some things that we've learned over the last six years as a company. Here's what we want you to bring to the table. Here's the problems we want you to solve. So just getting aligned from like a values perspective. What's a great outcome for the company? What's a great outcome for our creators? Like, let's get aligned here. That was the first thing. And that was actually a considerable amount of time (laughs) between the consultancy, exec team, me. It involves the board too, right? I mean, it's like a totally cross-functional work. So you get aligned on values. Then we started doing research. We were identifying, you know, okay, who do we want to ask about this? We want to make sure we get a really inclusive group of people. What does that mean? 
you know, so not only are we getting folks from underrepresented groups to be involved in the research, but we're also getting folks from different categories of creation. We're getting podcasters, we're getting video creators, we're getting web comics. Then we also want to make sure, hey, we're not just getting massive creators that, you know, are making $50,000 a month on the platform. We also want to get creators who are making $1,000 a month and $500 a month. And we want to see, are there differences by earnings? So we're assembling what we want to do is build a really diverse group of creators to do this research with and to be very intentional about, you know, what all those qualities are that we're looking for in that group of creators. So that was another big step. And then you're actually doing the research and reviewing it at a weekly cadence. So the firm was coming in every week. We were sitting down, reviewing lessons together. And at that point, you're literally asking creators things like, hey, what are your biggest pain points right now? What would you pay for? How much would you pay for it? Questions like that. And then you're learning more and more about, okay, here's what creators are saying they really don't like about you know Patreon as it is today. And if you were to do these things, they actually said they would love to pay for these extra things. That's part of that research that you sort of review at a weekly cadence. Then you actually debate after you do some research as, okay, what kind of pricing model do we actually want to employ? Because the choice to do a tiered pricing structure is a very deliberate choice that happened to resonate with our particular creators, the idea of good, better, and best. But there's other types of pricing models. So you can do role-based models. This is the podcaster package. This is the video package. This is the enterprise creator package. Or, you know, who are you? And opt into your role. And then you're priced based on your role. You can also do volume-based pricing, which a lot of companies do. The more you earn, the less you pay. Things like that. So you have to decide what framework do we want to use for our pricing? And so you interview creators, you show them different frameworks, you see how they react to it, you get a sense of what do creators want, what feels good, and then you have to couple that with, okay, what's also going to be good for the company? And of course, you have to balance all of those things as you're making those choices. And that's all part of this long plan. At the end of all that, the pricing firm makes some recommendation, and then you actually have to execute um, and what you learn, what I learned is in the process of execution, you know, you change the recommendation considerably as you do more research and you learn, okay, what's coming next? Are we going to, turns out we can't build this by that date. So we have to figure out some other way to build that and let's position things here. And then you're doing focus groups. And so, yeah, that, that's the process. It took us 10 months from picking a firm to rolling, to announcing something. So somewhere around 10 months. Got it. And I think what's terrifying to me about that is there's so much art versus just quantitative science, right? And you're balancing so many different varying opinions. And then you as the founder working with your board and your management team have to say, all right, this is the idea. We're going to run with it. So that's really impressive, that whole rollout. That's such an important lesson, though, for me is like <laughs> the, the art of it. You got to embrace that because yeah. we didn't the first time we rolled out. We were just being very quantitative mm. instead of like listening to our creators. Yeah. It's like, hey, do you like this? <laughs> um, like you have to you have to ask your customers if they like the thing. And that's an important part of it. And we missed that the first time around. And I think it's one of the lessons that we learned for the next round. That's great. And speaking of customers, could you share some sort of metric, maybe number of content creators, some sort of metric for the audience here to just get a general sense of scale for Patreon? Sure. Yeah. We've got over 100,000 creators that are wow. earning money on the platform from 3 million patrons now. And this year, we're going to send them over half a billion dollars. 
That is so cool. Yeah. That is so, so cool. Yeah, we're excited. That's awesome. And then with that, what are the KPIs and metrics that you use to gauge the health of the business? Yeah, there's a few really important ones. One really important metric for us is the number of creators on the platform that are earning a thousand bucks a month or more. That's really important. We also want to know how many creators on the platform are making a hundred bucks or more, right? So we look at creators by earnings bucket, but we want to make sure that we're building products for professional creators. Like our goal is to help people be full-time artists. That's what we want to do. Our mission is to fund the creative class. And so we want to make sure that we're getting more creators on the platform that are making meaningful salaries. If we have tons of creators, but they're not making meaningful salaries being artists, mm -hmm. that's not our mission. And then the other side is true. If we've got just a few creators that are making billions of dollars, that's also not our mission. So we want lots of creators that are making meaningful salaries. And so we look at creators that are, you know, along the spectrum of, you know, 100 to 1,000 and, and more. So that's one really important metric, the number of creators. The second is like total volume processed, right? How much money we're actually processing every year for those creators. That's a really important metric. Another important one is Patreon's revenue. How are we doing as a business? Are we able to continue building and invest properly where we need to? Are we balancing costs and revenue appropriately? So we have to be tracking our revenue very closely and making sure that we're building a, a long-term healthy business. It's our job to be a solid foundational rock for our creators that they can build on top of for decades to come. And we have to be, we have to have a very good grasp of our revenue in order to do that. So yeah, those are our three. Total dollars processed, number of creators, and Patreon's revenue. And what I love about the platform is that Patreon is aligned with creators in the sense that the more creators that are in that bucket of making that livable salary, the better Patreon does as well. So then I'm curious, what are some tools or initiatives you guys have rolled out for the sake of creators in order to not only make their lives easier, but also improve that metric? Whew, this is a hard one. So Patreon is, I think, as you just pointed out, the really wonderful thing about the company is that we want our creators to be successful. And we are not successful unless they're successful. So can I swear? Yeah. Our asses are on the line <laughs> to make sure that our creators are successful. Oh, it's just great like alignment. I think Chad Dickerson said this really well. He said, because of the business model, we don't have to choose between people and profits. And Patreon is the same sort of way. Like we have this percentage cut and we are successful when our creators are successful. Okay. So what have we done to add more creators? Originally when Patreon came out, it was kind of pegged by the market as crowdfunding. I don't think of it as crowdfunding. And it turns out there's a lot of creators who don't want to do crowdfunding. They don't like the idea of crowdfunding. It feels like asking for money, which is not what we thought Patreon was going to be or how we thought it was going to be perceived. We were thinking of it as, or rather, what we ended up doing is repositioning the, both the product and the marketing and the positioning away from this concept of crowdfunding and toward this concept of membership. And that was very deliberate and a really important thing because the feedback we were getting from creators is like, hey, I don't want to do the crowdfunding thing. We always wanted to build CRM for creators, but this was a moment where we realized, okay, 
CRM is one of the key differentiators between like crowdfunding and a suite of business tools to run and grow your membership business, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. And so we start, right? We built that CRM. We started saying like, hey, look, this is ownership of your audience. This is the first creator facing CRM. Like YouTube doesn't give you a CRM. Yeah. Facebook doesn't give you a CRM for the people that like your page. If you join Patreon, you get a CRM of your fans. Like actually, that's pretty I don't know of any other creator-facing company that's giving people email addresses and a full CRM system for their customer base. So that's an example. It was more than just CRM. It was a whole repositioning and then a series of new products too, like CRM, that kind of helped people realize, oh, this isn't crowdfunding. This is membership. This is a suite of tools that help me be a professional artist. Like, this is what I need as an artist who wants to be a full-time artist. This is what I need in order to, like, take care of the business thing so I can just go focus on making art. And as we've spoken about membership, we focus mostly on the creator side. So I'd love to spend some time talking about the other side of the platform, which are your members or donors. How do you think about increasing donor retention and repeat donations over time? So... Okay, this question actually goes back to a way that we think of Patreon. And then I'll answer your question specifically, but but this is getting into kind of a philosophical view of how we treat creators and how we think of creators. We don't view members as Patreon's users. Like I think YouTube thinks of a viewer as a YouTube user. This is a person who uses our app. We don't think of a patron as a Patreon user. That's our creator's customer. It's their customer. It's their member, not ours. We view ourselves as a B2C company. We're like a SaaS platform. We're tools that help you run and grow your business. And because of that, we try not to inject ourselves into the relationship between creator and fan. And when we have done that, it's hurt our creators and therefore us in the past. So my first answer to that question is what have you done? What have you learned for like how to decrease churn, say, or increase patron side retention? The way we handle that is we educate our creators on how they can improve their retention. Rather than us going to patrons, we go to creators and we say, hey, if you want to run a really successful membership business, here's some things that you can do to make sure that your fans and members are excited. And then some of those things that we've found are, you know, the things that patrons want. If they sign up for exclusive content, make sure they get the exclusive content. If they receive personal interaction with the creator, you know, in those first few months, that's really key. Recently, we actually did a little bit of a test and we found that creators who message patrons when a patron joins, if like if a patron, if a new patron gets a message from a creator that they just joined, that has a positive impact on churn. That study was correlation, not causation, but still it was an indicator that, okay, maybe there's actually something to this personal interaction component. So yeah, there've been a few specific things, but I think broadly our philosophy is educate the creator on how to run a better business and then let them choose what to do and what not to do. Got it. Yeah. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I really like that perspective as yeah. opposed to Patreon spamming my inbox with emails saying, hey, you should donate again. Exactly. Yeah. Because if we did that, our creators would be like, what the fuck, Patreon? Why are you emailing my patrons? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's my job, not yours, right? Yeah. yeah. What if you bought something on Patagonia and then got an email from Shopify yeah. saying, hey, go buy that jacket again? Patagonia would email Shopify be like, why are you emailing our customers and telling uh, them what to buy? Yeah. Right? That's a really good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So then we'll shift to the last part of the conversation here, which revolves around the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. Yeah. So what are some consistent patterns or themes that you see, let's say, across successful B2B2C companies? 
Oh my God. All right. Well, okay. I'll preface this question by saying I'm a first-time CEO and founder, and I'm not sure I have decades of pattern recognition across successful B2B2C companies. So all I can kind of tell you about is the comps that I've seen that I've studied and some of their strategies and things that I've learned. And it's not that many things. I mean, when I think about similar companies to Patreon, I already mentioned Shopify. That's one of them. I think they do a really good job. And actually, a lot of our strategy is, is we've learned a lot from them. So I think one key thing, this is true of, I think, Shopify and Square, which I think is another great comp for Patreon, is like a deep respect of the, essentially, the supply side. It's a focus on the supply side, treating the supply side like competent people who know what they're doing and giving them the education, the tools to be empowered and then letting them do it. And a strategic focus on those people, as opposed to the B2B to C, <laughs> right? They're not focusing on the C so much as the, the second B. Shopify does that well. I think Square does that well. So that's one thing is making sure you crisply and clearly articulate who you're building for and why and focus on that, nail it really well. So we definitely do that. We focus on building for professional creators. And then other things, let's see, other things that I think Square and Shopify have done well, or other comps for Patreon. Identifying the portion of your market that's international and making sure that you're solving international problems, I think, is super important. I know there are some companies that I know were late at doing this that are not direct comps to Patreon, but I've talked to some other CEOs. I don't want to say their names to <laughs> this sort of stuff they told me in private, but one thing I've heard from multiple folks is they wish they had identified the international potential sooner. And then, of course, there are some companies that have gone out really early and acquired international competitors or, or just established international you know, sales and marketing offices and, and things like that. So one example that I think ties together both of those really nicely for me is Alibaba. So I'd always just thought of Alibaba as a B2C company. In my head, the paradigm was eBay for China. And then I heard Jack Ma say one day, our customer is not you. It's the small businesses we're enabling. And in that moment, it clicked that that was a B2B2C company. And he said, everything we do is about enabling the small business person, is about enabling the content creator. And that was such a shift for me because I always think about the Ebays and Facebooks and Amazons of the world that are just innately and maniacally consumer focused. And to have that flip of the model was really cool. And then obviously Alibaba is first and foremost yeah. an international company. That's so, a great example. Yeah. It's funny. Did you read Jeff Bezos's most recent shareholder letter? I have not. He starts the shareholder letter Unless I'm remembering this wrong, I think it's talking about all of the portion of, it's like the portion of sales or, or total dollars or something that's going to sellers on Amazon as opposed to Amazon-specific products. And it's just climbing over you know the last 20 years or something. It was like some huge number, of at least a decade worth of data. And in that sense, that was a head turner for me looking at Amazon and thinking like, oh yeah, this is kind of like enabling other people to be sellers. Which is strange. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's just strange because the seller experience on Amazon I found is really challenging. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. We won't go into that tangent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so those two patterns I definitely agree with. That's really interesting. So then let's say in your own personal life, are there any patterns or mental models that you follow in your decision making? Oh, yeah. So many things that I've learned over the last six years that I would say are now like frameworks that I, I don't apply 
across my whole life because you have to be very careful with that. <laughs> I'm sure your wife appreciates that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh boy. It's really tempting to want to apply every lesson at company to friends and family, and but no, you can't. Yeah, that doesn't work. There's a great framework that I love. It's very simple. Listen, decide, communicate. And when you're making a tough decision, I've found one thing that I like to do now is name the fact that I'm about to make a tough decision. So instead of making the decision and going to a bunch of surprised people who have strong opinions about it, you go to those people first and you're like, hey, I have to make a tough call in the next two weeks. Here's why this call is urgent and we have to like build alignment around a direction and pick a path and go. Get everybody on board with the fact that it's time to make a tough call. So people understand that, okay, well, I hope we go the way I want it to go, but I realize that we have to make this call one way or another. So you, you name it. And then you listen. You get input from people. You make sure that you're gathering all the data that you need to make a good decision. And yeah, skipping that step can be really hurtful. Not only do you then you know risk not making the right decision because maybe you're not doing the data gathering phase well, but then it sucks to be on the receiving end of that decision because you feel like you know, the person making it didn't even talk to the experts who have all the data. And you want to feel heard as a person in a company. And then once you listen, you make the decision, you decide, and then you communicate the decision. And that last part is super important. You don't just make the decision and run. You go back to the team, you write out the decision and the logic in an email or in a paper doc or whatever it is. You say, here's why we did this. Here are the three points. Here's the trade-offs. You know, here's what we've decided to do. And so now it's all time to like get on the bus and let's go do it. So that framework I found to just be super helpful. Listen, decide, communicate. And gosh, that applies to so, so many things. That one, I don't want to say applies to everything, but it, it gets close. It's a really wonderful framework. Awesome. And last question here. What is a book you've recently read and how has it changed your perspective? I've been reading a lot recently, which I love because I now have a commute. And so I have time to read, which is just wonderful. The last book I read is a Pat Lencioni book. It's called The Advantage, Why Organizational Health Trumps Everything Else. That was a great one. It's about the operations of like running an executive team and cadence of meetings and building trust and organizational communication, hiring. There's so many good things in that. I loved that one. One that I read three months ago, I think this one was called Who the A Method for Hiring. Just like, ugh, just kill me. Um, but it, it was a wonderful book and talks about this technique called top grading during an interview process, which is a technique that I now use for all interviews, where you just get really curious about a person's history and very inquisitive, and you really drill down and try to build a complete picture of their entire career. And it takes a long time, so I do two-hour interviews now. But you leave that interview with really strong signal. I remember before reading this book, leaving interviews and feeling like, well, I, th I think this person could do the job, but yeah. I don't know. And I mean, maybe we could try it. <laughs> and like now I leave and I'm like strong yes or strong no. Like I know that this person is going to crush it or I know that this is not the right person for the job. And that feels so good to have that confidence coming out of an interview. So I would highly recommend that book to entrepreneurs or CEOs. It, it's really helped me think about how to run an interview so that you get strong signal and develop a strong opinion about a candidate. 
That's a really good one because I think one of the top issues that founders deal with while scaling is hiring quality talent. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that insight. And also thank you, Jack, for joining the pod. Of course. Thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Jack for joining us today. As always, this podcast is ad-free because I despise podcast ads. So if you enjoy the show, I'd love if you could help support the show with a two-second rating or via my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash patternrec. You can also learn more about Jack and Patreon on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Who. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.